Most of you worked this week. Uh, you had work to do even today. For some, this work, the, uh, for some of you, um, there was financial compensation for the work, perhaps well or perhaps poorly. You were compensated. You scanned groceries or you taught a classroom or you worked with patients or you made coffee or you, you know, engineered something. I don't know. Uh, for some of this work, you yourself paid a cost with no monetary gain whatsoever. You wrangled seemingly insane toddlers or you rocked babies to sleep or you navigated relational conflict with a friend or with a spouse in order to better understand one another and preserve the health of your relationship. Relationships are hard work. And what's more, some of you loved your work while others disliked it very much. Some of you counted hours until your shift ended and you dreaded Monday or you were bored or exhausted with no satisfaction to show for it. Others of you liked what you did. It was exciting or fulfilling or it felt right, it fit. And this, of course, runs contrary to the pervasive cultural paradigm of work as a bad thing. You know, the ordinary colloquialism is that work is lousy, work is a bummer. No one wants to do it, but you have to do it. No one likes it, but what can you do? And yet, as is the case with many of our paradigms for ordinary, everyday life, the idea of work as a bummer runs contrary to the story of the scriptures. For the past three weeks, we've been in a series all about discovering your identity and calling. See, at Van City, we're working to arrange our entire church to accommodate our vision, which is practicing the way of Jesus together. And this means two things in particular. First, we realize that sermons and songs about Jesus alone are not the primary attributes of discipleship. And we use that word a lot. A man or a woman or a child who decides to follow Jesus as their teacher must uh, become a disciple. Another way of translating that word is an apprentice. And every apprentice of Jesus arranges their entire lives in order to effectively live out three goals. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. So listening to sermons and singing songs about Jesus are absolutely a part of that journey, for sure. But there's more. There's a lot more. The way of Jesus requires practice. This is why Jesus himself famously warns that it isn't enough to simply hear his words. One must also, quote, put them into practice. And so every few weeks, together as a church, we take on a new spiritual discipline or a new practice for emotional and spiritual health and maturity. We teach through it here for a few Sundays, and each week we gather in small groups that we call Van City Communities where we actually put the teachings of Jesus into practice together. And these past few weeks have been about a journey of self-discovery. Down throughout church history, so many monumental figures of the faith spread out across many traditions and backgrounds have all argued that God has designed for every human a unique identity and calling. And that one aspect of our discipleship to Jesus is the quest to learn who God has made us to be. Last week, we talked about the inner journey of that process, which has much to do with overcoming something called the shadow side. If you weren't here and that sounds weird, go back and listen to the podcast. It is weird. This week, we're going to talk about the outer journey of the process, which has way more to do with what you do as the person that you become. And specifically, it has to do with your work. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Since that no one needed one, everyone has a Bible. Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> if you read or listen to folks who studied the Bible, you may have happened upon a phrase, uh, a biblical theology. Often those words accompany like a book or a lecture or even an argument. 
But really, it's a technical term. Theology is, of course, the study of God and biblical means from the Bible. So in the technical sense, to develop a biblical theology is to take on any given idea and to trace its presence or lack thereof throughout the entirety of the scriptures in order to develop a robust understanding of what the Bible has to say about any given topic. A biblical theology of work begins in Genesis chapter 1. And before we get into the text, I want to point out one noteworthy aspect of such a theology. The first is that a biblical theology of work is irrevocably tethered to one fundamental question of humankind, which is, why are you here? What's the point? What should you be doing? And does it matter? And every worldview offers an answer to said question. Like it or not, everyone actually lives out an answer to this question, whether they articulate one philosophically or not. What I mean is that if someone argues, for example, that life has no purpose ultimately or that they aren't sure what a purpose might be, but then that person in question lives in pursuit of a career or for a claim or for comfort or for security, the kind of things that people tend to live for, they are effectively saying that the meaning of life is to pursue a career or to pursue a claim or comfort or security. And the church has typically produced answers to the question of our purpose that on paper sound quite spiritual. Uh, The Westminster Catechism, for example, which is this famous summary of Christian doctrine from around the 15th century, it famously reads that, quote, man's chief end is to glorify, glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But from the outset of the biblical story, the reader is presented with a far more pragmatic and down to earth answer to the question of our purpose. So let's read Genesis chapter 1 beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, I want you to notice that word rule in verse 28. In Hebrew, the word is radah, and it means to reign over or have dominion over someone or something. It's the language of royalty. Adam and Eve, if you know the story, are made as a king and a queen designed to rule over the garden. And this identity is wrapped up in the reality expressed in verse 27, which is in the image of God, he created them. And there's been a bit of debate over what exactly it means to be made in God's image, but many scholars agree that the idea is connected to our royal appointment to rule and reign over creation. Just as God himself rules and reigns over the entire cosmos. But there's a particular way that we are to go about it. More on that in just a minute. In fact, this sort of language of being made in God's image isn't actually unique to the Bible at all. The name of the Egyptian pharaoh, for example, Amun-Ra, literally means the image of Ra, which is the Egyptian sun god. Another pharaoh, Ramesses, means Ra begot him. Meaning, whether in ancient Egypt or if you trace down the history through Samaria, Babylon, the image of God was a reference to a king. But of course, this means that the king alone bears God's image and his subjects do not. 
And the Bible tells a really different, very subversive story. In the scriptures, all of humanity are God's image-bearing kings and queens, all of whom are crafted that they might partner and collaborate with God in ruling and reigning over creation. You and I are designed to actively partner with God in taking the world forward. And this is sometimes called the cultural mandate. And if you know the story of Genesis, yes, things go awry. More on that in a bit as well. But that cultural mandate never gets canceled throughout the story of the scriptures. Humanity was and is designed to actively partner with God in taking the world forward. This is true of those of us who follow Jesus, and it's actually true for those of us who do not. Theist or atheist, agnostic or Buddhist or Muslim, and on down the list, every human being is created in God's image with dignity and value, loved by God and crafted with purpose, which is over and against our hostile modern Western acrimony. It's not only the rich and powerful who have value. It's not only white men. It's not American citizens. It's not American Christians only. All human beings have been crafted in the image of God, and that with a purpose to rule and to reign, or in our more common language, we are actually designed for work. Now, when I say that word work, don't think immediately of your job, at least not your job alone, uh, your nine to five-ish sort of paid gig. The easy evidence of the contrary is parenting, right? How many of you guys are parents? But uh, yeah, a, a lot of, by the number of children that we have downstairs, it should be like more people in this room <laughs> are parents. Uh, <laughs> parenting is work. If you didn't, I'm sure you could have deduced that without having children. Uh, it, are any of you guys being paid for it? That, do you know something that I don't? You don't get paid for it. That's the point. Do you get it? Are you guys tracking with me? Are you awake? You are? Thanks. <laughs> you don't get paid for it. In fact, you have to pay for it, and quite a bit at that. Um, work is about more than your job, but it's not about less than your job. So let's look at the next chapter in Genesis, chapter 2. Now bear with me, this sounds a bit strange, but we're going somewhere. Once you're there, let's read a bit, beginning in verse 8, Genesis 2, 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. Uh, the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there, in case you guys were looking for those things. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. There's a, a strange amount of specificity, you know, aromatic resin and onyx or also whatever you say. The point of all this is actually revealed in verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And there's a priestly connotation to the Hebrew words here. These duties to work and care for the garden are the duties of priests. And interestingly, the Garden of Eden is often thought of or even depicted as this like completely perfect place. 
And then it begs the question, why is the man asked to work and care for the garden if it was created perfect and complete? What the heck is he going to do with a perfect place? The scriptures don't actually describe the garden as perfect or complete at all. And when I say that the garden was imperfect, don't think flawed because the scriptures say it was actually really good. Think of it uh, as purposefully incomplete but full of potential. The author takes great effort to describe a place full of raw materials. You know, there's like good gold there and aromatic resin and stuff. It's brimming with possibilities. And then the author says, and it's here that God puts his king and queen, his partners, his collaborators to work. This is why Tim Keller describes work as rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. This means that when and if you do imagine Adam Adam and Eve in the garden, you shouldn't imagine a beautiful yet boring rainforest. You know, it always looks like a rainforest in which some naked men and women are lounging around all day talking to animals, perfectly obscured by like, you know, some shrubbery. Uh, That'd probably only be great for a couple of days, tops, or if you're really into it, you could make it last a week or so. Instead, you know, imagine the man and the woman at joyful, collaborative work. They are actually moving the world forward from the garden. And there are glimpses of this in the story itself. You don't have to take my word for it. If you're still in Genesis 2, look down at verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave, gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Now, I realize that sounds weird. Don't get hung up on literalism and questions of time and science. This is an ancient Near Eastern poetic story. What I do want you to notice is that God gave Adam work to do. Did God need Adam to name the animals? No. Yeah, yeah right. No. God, God made the animals up. Whether you believed he whipped them up in a day or by designing and overseeing the complicated process of evolution for millions of years, both views are just fine. Both of them acknowledge that God was at the helm and that God was an infinite intelligence in doing so. He has wisdom. He has creative power and infinitely so. So he can probably come up with his own names and surely he has no need to honor the input of some dude who didn't have a hand in designing the universe at all. You know, God made him up and he's like, what do you think? we should call him. I, I imagine the names are probably pretty bad. God wants to collaborate with Adam. God isn't interested in a dictatorship. He's not interested in unilateral control, a world where he pulls all the strings. God chooses of his own volition to give humanity a say. And more than that, he chooses to give them jobs. He, he assigns work to Adam. And there's more. Humanity is tasked with working the garden, but also f- with caring for it. In Hebrew, that word is shamar. It can be translated to guard or to protect or to watch over. Human beings are given the responsibility of realizing the raw potential in the world around them to work it in the language of the scriptures, but they are to do so while caring for creation as well. I sometimes uh, get so frustrated in the conversation around creation care or what, you know, some other people might call environmentalism because some Christians uh, seem so far more loyal to the ideas and dispositions of like a socio-political paradigm than they are to the Bible. 
And really, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to arrive at the conclusion that perhaps the creator of the world might be concerned with the treatment of creation, you know? Disciples of Jesus should always be the best environmentalists. We should be more concerned for the environment than people who don't follow Jesus. We should be more concerned for the ethical treatment of the creation of animals than those who do not follow Jesus. And I honestly can't begin to count the number of conversations I've entertained or overheard in which someone who doesn't even follow Jesus will confront someone who does with the suggestion to, you know, recycle or something, or to wash dishes rather than throwing away plastic spoons unnecessarily, or to, you know, walk when driving is unnecessary. And the Christian will accuse this person of being a hippie, or like a liberal, or a leftist, or whatever it might be. I honestly can't count how often I've had conversations in which uh, a disciple of Jesus learns that their favorite chain restaurants in the news for just horrific cruelty against animals and revolting conditions on factory farms and destruction of the environment. And they laugh and they say something like, well, it sure tastes good. And I think, man, who cares what creation care sounds like to someone else? To me, it sounds like the scriptures. It sounds like the Bible. It sounds like what God has asked us to do. And really, you follow a teacher who commands you to love your enemies. He's called the Prince of Peace. If you don't want to be accused of being a hippie at least once or twice, I've got bad news if you want to follow Jesus. My point is that our call to work is also about caring for the world and for the people in it. And it has been from the beginning, and it will be in the end as well. One more time, turn from the first book in the Bible to the very last one. Let's look at Revelation chapter 22. If you know the story of the Bible, things start good, but then they almost immediately go bad. And the rest of the story is about what God plans to do to get us out of the mess that we've created. And God's rescuing work eventually comes to full fruition sometime in the future. We're not there yet. And Revelation 22 offers a glimpse of that reality. So once you're there, let's read Revelation 22, beginning in the first verse. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Now, of course, in the original manuscript of this text, there's no chapters, there's no verses, there's no chapter headers, but chances are all of your Bibles feature all three. So what header is above chapter 22 in your Bible? Anyone? Eden restored. Eden restored. What were you going to say, Levi? What's your say? The river of life. The river of life? I like his better. It's better for my purposes, but thank you for participating. <laughs> don't, let that, don't let that lead you off the trail. Uh, mine actually says the same thing. It says Eden restored. And notice in the text itself, it isn't actually Eden. Not really. There's a city, for one. There's no city in Eden. And if you read the entire end of Revelation, there's actually much more than that. There's art and culture and music and food and nations and people and diversity. My point is that the story doesn't end with God putting an end to work and collaboration and culture and the realizing of the world's potential. All of that's right there in the story in Revelation 22 as the story of the Bible comes to its grand finale. Work and the results that it can yield are actually good things in the scripture. They were there before the fall and they are there when the fall is reversed. Now what does this have to do in a pragmatic sense with your identity and calling? One quote I've read several times already throughout the series is from St. Catherine of Siena. She said, when we are who we are called to be, 
we will set the world ablaze. Discovering your identity and calling is about learning what God says is true about you in one sense. It's about uncovering your shortcomings and brokenness and working toward maturity and, and, and healing. But it's also about becoming someone. And more than that, someone who actually does something. Contrary to the pervading sentiment all around you all the time, work is good. It's not bad. And while it's true that in Genesis, when things first go awry, the results of work become cursed, work itself is not the curse. Remember, work is there in the story before things go wrong. Before the curse, man and woman are there in the garden collaborating with God, ruling and reigning, caring for creation, naming animals, all sorts of stuff. The question each of you have to ask yourself in your journey of self-discovery is, what does it look like for me, in the language of Keller, to rearrange the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone? What does it look like for you, personally, to rule, to care for creation, to partner with God in leading the world forward? And many of us tragically understand the world around us divided into two distinct dimensions. And we think of the world as sacred or else secular and so reading your Bible and going to church and praying are all spiritual things, sacred things. But making coffee or taking a walk or listening to music or having dinner with a friend are all secular things. And listen, uh, such an understanding of the world is not only not represented in the Bible, it actually runs contrary to the teachings of the Scriptures. Everything is spiritual. Everything is sacred in that sense. Your work, your job, your vocation, your dream, they are all deeply spiritual. And listen, this is true if you work at a church or a nonprofit, sure, or if you work at a restaurant or a school or as a parent or as an artist or as an engineer, your work is sacred. It is spiritual. So to end tonight, I want to propose a few points about work in the context of your identity and calling if you're taking notes. First is this, everyone is called to work. The cultural mandate doesn't come with a retirement plan. Uh, it isn't an awful time of life to endure before you can move to Florida and go golfing or I don't know, whatever the stereotype is. Work is actually wired into the design of humanity. It isn't something to get out of or avoid or something from which to hope and plan for an escape. Uh, my wife, Abby, works for this company that manufactures something called essential oils. Uh, they're the thing right now. Uh, and it's a decent gig. She enjoys it. But like working for just about any company, there's a few squirrely things now and then. For example, uh, the company is populated almost entirely, or at least, you know, the, the, her coworkers and colleagues are almost entirely uh, women within a certain peer group, some of whom have had such tremendous success that they brag about retiring their husbands early. And Abby told me that they love to describe it with this weird word, freedom. Some of these employees encourage newer workers in the company to work hard so that they can ascend to such a status that their husbands no longer have to work some awful job and they can be free to not work at all. Freedom. And I thought, man, good grief, what a bizarre and wacky view of vocation, you know? Because it's one thing to desire a way out of, you know, McDonald's or whatever. You don't want to be there for the rest of your... Or if you do, that's fine, but if, if you don't like it. It's quite another thing to desire an end to work altogether, 
You were made to work. And when you do not, you languish in aimlessness. Your drive and enthusiasm for life and for the kingdom of God begins to wane. You feel without purpose. There's no vision or dream. Your discipline recedes. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you don't have a formal nine-to-five job, you're somehow violating your personhood. Which brings me to my next point. Your vocation may or may not be your job. And I just mentioned, uh, my wife's a great example. She works for a company that uh, sells essential oils, but she'd never described that as her vocation. Uh, For almost as long as I've known her, Abby has known that at least one dimension of her vocation and calling was motherhood. And she wanted to take the raw potential of children and to work tirelessly in the effort to shape them as healthy, thriving disciples of Jesus. And she has all sorts of other stuff she does on the side for work. And then she's passionate about many of them. Some of them um, generate money and some don't. But for the work of motherhood, she gets no paycheck at all. And parenthood isn't the only example of this. You guys know this well enough. Many of you know um, uh, me, for example, uh, for nearly two decades of my life, my primary gig was, was music. I wrote and recorded songs, and then I'd be gone for like nine months out of the year r- driving, driving around in a van playing music. And there was a season many years into this journey in which the endeavor became financially stable. And by that, I mean to the degree that I could live very simply without having to chase other side jobs to make ends meet. But for many, many, many years, that was not the case. So we would spend a few weeks uh, at home washing windows as independent contractors just to have enough money to eat for months on the road at a time. And by eat, I mean $5 a day. That's not an exaggeration. Um, And if you asked me during those years, what is it that you do? What's your job? I would say, I'm a musician. I would never say, I'm a window washer. And the window washing was a paid gig. It was a nine to five. It was not my vocation. And I don't think either of these guys would describe it as their vocation uh, either. It wasn't our calling. And I did both for a season uh, in order to be a semi-responsible adult. But I knew that I was meant to do something else during that time. And for years, I actually bought into this lie that was espoused around me at all times from people constantly telling me that what I dedicated most of my time and life and energy to wasn't a real job. You know, and let me tell you something. It was a real job. It was hard Work. It was a real calling, a real vocation. It required a tremendous amount of sacrifice. And for you in your season of life, maybe you have a job that pays the bills, but your vocation does not. And that's okay. And that doesn't mean don't, you know, don't be irresponsible or foolish and not provide for your bills and your family or anything like that. Remember, even I washed windows. But uh, what's important is learning who it is that God has made you to be and what that person is called to do. And then you work for balance in your life. And that brings me to my next point. Work evolves in seasons of life. So maybe you're frustrated with a season of life that keeps you anchored in something in which you don't feel called to do so that you can make ends meet, and that's okay. That happens. Sometimes it happens for years at a time. Or maybe you've been at it for many years and you've finished one season of your vocation and and you're not quite sure what's next, and that's okay too. Um, I have a friend in Portland who was a firefighter for many, many years, and now he's retired. And now he's moved on to being an unpaid pastor and elder at a church in Portland. So he moved from one season of work to another. And believe me, I had no idea (laughs) that I'd be moving from like traveling entertainer with a home base in Georgia to teacher at a small local church in Vancouver. 
And, and, and really, listen, I, I actually believe this. My vocation as like this weirdo who screamed and flailed around on a stage was no less spiritual than my vocation as a pastor who teaches the Bible. It was no, one was not more Christian or more noteworthy or more important than the other because work itself is spiritual. Martin Luther has this excellent quote about the nature of vocation. He wrote, The shoemaker does his duty not by putting crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. God is interested in good craftsmanship. What he's getting at is that the way I made my job, for example, as a musician, honor God, was not by going out of my way to talk about Jesus, even though we did that, but I would argue that the way that we made our vocation honor God was to honor the artistic vision that God had given us as musicians. Uh, a little while ago, I was getting a cup of coffee at uh, Relevant, which is just across the street that way. Is that right? I did it. You see that, Bennett? Yeah. I don't know how to get out of this room. Horrible with directions. My compass doesn't work, so I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. When people ask me how this night went, I'm going to say I pointed the right way. Pointed the right way. Anyway, what was I saying? I also have ADD. <laughs> oh, um, I was getting a cup of coffee. Irrelevant, just across the street, and there's this lovely gentleman in there who loves to talk about coffee. He's into coffee. It's very pleasant. I love talking to him, and I asked a simple question about, I think I just said, well, I don't know, which one should I get? I was buying a bag of beans, and suddenly he was describing flavors as colors and stuff. He was like, well, this one has a burgundy flavor. I'm like, what is that? What does that mean? And he was telling me all about where it came from and everything. And it was entertaining. I, I honestly walked out with this cup of coffee, and I was smiling, and I uh, felt compelled to pray for those guys. And I said, man, bless these guys at Relevant Coffee because clearly they care deeply about coffee. They really want to do their job well. They really want you to have an excellent cup of coffee. It's a beautiful thing. I don't have any idea if any of them follow Jesus, but really, how do you make, uh, how do you do spiritual work as a barista? You make an excellent cup of coffee. Spiritual work. And of course, this implies something very sobering. There are right ways and wrong ways to work. What does it look like for you to do your job as a disciple of Jesus? Inevitably, there are some jobs that as a disciple of Jesus, you will not be able to do. Um, you cannot, here's an easy hyperbolic example, cannot honor the teachings of Jesus as like an exotic dancer, for example. Uh, I would argue personally, <laughs> I would argue personally that as a disciple of Jesus, you cannot do a job for which you will be required to kill other people. But it's not always that obvious, you know. One of my closest friends works for an advertising agency in Portland. It's a good gig. It pays decently. It's relatively fun, as I understand it. But sometimes he tells me, man, I'm just not sure that I can continue to work for a company whose entire purpose is to convince consumers to buy things that they don't need. And because materialism is antithetical to the way of Jesus. Now, listen, I'm, I'm not saying that it's always that black and white. I realize it isn't. And my friend still works for the agency. But what I want to point out is that there are questions that you have to ask as a disciple of Jesus. You have to wrestle and think through our work and whether or not it benefits the kingdom of God and it lines up with the teachings of Jesus. Can you honor God at an ad agency? Probably, yeah. I don't know much about working at an ad agency. But how exactly? That's the question that you have to ask. 
Sometimes honoring God simply means making good shoes in Luther's language. And other times it probably looks a a bit more specific, a bit more subversive. I heard a story uh, this week about a gentleman who works in an office. He believes in his work. He does it to the glory of God, all that. But he also takes time each morning before he goes into work to ask God's spirit if there's anything God would like to speak over his coworkers, none of whom follow Jesus. And guess what? He then goes to work and he tells them what God said. And he offers to pray for them. And could such a thing land him in trouble? Probably, according to the story. Yeah, it could. But that's what he feels is necessary for honoring God and his work in this particular season. So do good work and prepare, be prepared to do more. Tonight, I, I want to end uh, by bringing up an idea we approached briefly earlier in the series. Often in the church, we talk about getting rid of ourselves, you know, so to speak anyway. We say things like, God must become greater, I must become less. Or we say, all of you, God, none of me, none of me. Uh, Once before I was about to teach somewhere, a young lady was praying over me. And I remember specifically her saying, Lord, may you cause Josh to forget everything he's prepared so that it would be only your words coming out of his mouth. And I thought, well, dang, if that happens, I wasted my whole week studying and reading books and stuff. And the problem with the whole all of you, none of me thing is that if that's what God really wanted, why the heck did he make you at all? You know, he had that before you got here. Does God need Adam to name the animals? No, he wants it that way. He wants you to partner with him in working, and he's designed you with specific purpose for your work. Work is not what you do to get money to buy things that you want. That's consumerism. Work is living into the identity and calling God has specifically designed for your life. So in our journey of self-discovery, may we become who we are called to be that we might set the world ablaze. And with that in mind, let's pray and invite God's Spirit to come.